Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! Today we are joined by Samira Kawash to discuss her book, Candy, A Century of Panic and Pleasure. Samira has a PhD in Literary Studies from Duke University and is a professor emerita at Rutgers University. You can learn more about Samira at her website, candyprofessor.com. During our conversation, we discuss the important but ignored place candy has occupied in the American conscious, the many shifting meanings attached to the sugary treat, and what can be learned from the increasingly blurred line between food and candy. Samira, thank you for joining us today. Oh, hi, it's my pleasure. So, why the fascination with candy? Well, don't we all have a little bit of fascination with candy? I mean, it's, you know, a ubiquitous part of American life from the earliest memories of childhood. We have our piñatas and our birthday parties and our Valentine's baskets and our Easter baskets and our Halloween trick-or-treat. Um, most of us have really happy memories associated with candy. But uh, when my daughter was about three years old, I started thinking about, you know, oh, she'd like some jelly beans, should I give them to her? And I realized that I had some real ambivalence about that. It seemed like maybe those jelly beans weren't really an appropriate treat for a little three-year-old. On the other hand, they were just sugar, and, you know, she drank apple juice and ate popsicles, so what's the problem? And I started really noticing that there was a kind of ambivalence about candy and the sugar in candy that was very specific to candy, that most of my mommy friends didn't have the same kind of ambivalence about other kinds of sugary treats, at least at that time. Now, that was like, you know, seven years ago. I think our awareness about sugar has changed pretty dramatically since then. But I think that candy has a special place in our hearts, but also a special place in our worries. Mm-hmm. So that was, it was that inconsistency that motivated you to write the book or start doing more historical research? Well, you know, I'm a cultural studies person, and so whenever I find uh, an aspect of culture that seems to have meanings associated with it that are in excess of what the thing really is, that always fascinates me. And in the case of candy, like I said, it, it's, it's a sugary thing, but we eat lots of sugary things. And it really struck me that the feelings that were associated with candy were not just about the sugar, although when people talk about it, they tend to talk about it in sort of scientific terms around the sugar. So I started really thinking about and then investigating the sources of these meanings that are associated with candy, both the meanings of pleasure and happiness and goodness and celebration, and also the meanings that are more associated with uh, disease and decay and moral panic, and discovering that there were layers of meaning surrounding candy that came in many different, many different aspects, medical, health, nutritional, parenting, issues about childhood, issues about diet, that really candy seemed to, to touch on a, a really wide array of cultural ideas. So in the book, you spend time documenting these dramatically shifting meanings that have been attached to candy from the late 1800s through the present day. Uh, would you be willing if we use the first part of the podcast to work through some of those different cultural shifts? Sure, let's talk about that. So the first shift that you talked about in the book, or one of the first major ones, was the move from candy for the elite to candy for the masses. So what led to this change, and, and how was candy viewed at this time? The sugar work that we think of as candy is, you know, it's sugar that's been boiled or um, 
spoiled and, and changed in some way from its raw state. And the skills that are associated with sugar boiling were, for a really long time, um, very closely guarded skills. They belonged to an elite uh, trade group and to apothecaries, and, and not normal people didn't really know how to turn sugar into candy. So there was very limited amounts of candy available. And besides that, there were limited amounts of sugar. Sugar wasn't refined in huge quantities, and so sugar was expensive. Candy making was a very um, uh, small-scale craft that was only practiced by a limited number of people. And as a result, there just wasn't that much candy to be had. Um, there were, for Americans in the, in the 18th and early 19th century, there would be imported candies, which would be very expensive. And we're talking about sort of um, really hard kind of sugar-coated nuts or seeds. Um, we're talking about some kinds of softer candies. But these were, you know, they were either imported from France or they were called French candies, but they were expensive and they were really reserved for economic elites and then also perhaps at holidays, in particular Christmas. And you remember there's the famous Clement Moore um, poem, The Night Before Christmas. And what do those children dream of the night before Christmas? They have visions of sugar plums dancing in their head. And to me, that really is a signal kind of moment in uh, the cultural documentation of candy because that's around 1820, and children are receiving candy once a year at Christmas time. And so that's the time when you really dream of, of getting some candy. Um, ordinary Americans in the 19th century would have, you know, they might have boiled molasses to make a kind of simple taffy. Um, they might have uh, boiled maple sugar or, uh, or honey or something like that to, to stiffen it up. But, you know, the kind of candy as we know it today, the vast variety of textures and shapes and colors and flavors and forms really doesn't happen until machine technology is introduced. Both the machine technology to uh, refine sugar on a vast scale, and that's relying on steam power, and the machine technologies to transform that refined sugar into all kinds of candy. So there's a what I call the machine can the machine candy revolution that takes place really after the Civil War in the U.S. when uh, a, a, a generation of inventors creates all kinds of machines to manufacture candy at a, high, at a high speed. And when you have high speed manufacture, you have high volume. And when you have high volume, the price comes down. So all of a sudden, by the 1880s, there's a large amount of candy available, and it's available at a cheap price. This totally transforms American relationship with candy. Was that shift from candy being something you could dream about or only have once a year? to being something readily available? Uh, was that seen as a sign of progress? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that, that candy was associated with progress exactly. I mean, certainly there was a, a, a new kind of exuberance around candy and a new kind of sense of plenitude. You know, we have this economic expansion. Well, and the economy is kind of fluctuating dramatically in the 1880s, but it's growing. There's a new um, burgeoning middle class and there's a sense of, of um, sort of opulence around all kinds of activities. And I think candy fit really well into that. You know, there was lots more candy to be had um, at Christmas time. This was the era of the little um, paper cones full of candy that were hung on Christmas trees. Uh, and then there was just candy to be had sort of in, by, uh, in the ordinary course of the day. There were the little shops that had the penny candy displays, and it's in the 1880s and 1890s that you first have this vision of little children taking their pennies to the penny candy shop and spending an hour just examining every little kind of candy to decide how they're going to spend their pennies and how they're going to enjoy their afternoon munching on their bag of penny candy. Then after this time where uh, there was a celebration of candy being available for the masses, you write about another shift that takes place where suddenly candy is viewed with suspicion or viewed as a fake sweet or the subject of fear. And I think you even talk about being linked to sin and alcohol. 
What happened? Well, I think it wasn't so much a shift as, as an emergence of anxieties that emerged in tandem with the rapid expansion of candy. So at the same time that you suddenly have an explosion in the availability of this new kind of manufactured food product, you also have the rise of a, a wide variety of worries about what the damaging possibilities of this new kind of food might be. Now, for me, it's important to notice that candy is an entirely novel substance in the universe at this time. It's machine-made, it's artificially colored, it's artificially flavored, it doesn't try to resemble something that you might make at home. So uh, to me, that aura of artificiality is an important part of what Americans were reacting to when they began to attribute all kinds of harms to candy. Um, one of the things that's most striking from this period is the rise of poison candy scares. Um, and it's it's Widely, it's kind of believed today that there were serious problems with poison candy at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, um, leading up to the pure food reform movements and the pure food laws of, of 1906. But in fact, going back into the records, there really wasn't. The, the candy did not poison anyone, but it was an easy scapegoat for the, this kind of anxiety that the food system was changing, society was changing rapidly, and there, there was something really dangerous going on. So what would happen was when a child would get sick, they would say that must have been candy that poisoned them. Investigators would find that it was something else, that it was tainted milk usually or gas leaks or some uh, contaminated water, much more common kind of public health problems. But candy is on the scene, and it's easy to blame candy when something goes wrong. And it's really striking the extent to which the, um, the candy industry really organized itself to counter these attacks on candy and the claims that candy was poison. Um, beginning in the 1880s, they started investigating all of these charges of poison candy and trying to demonstrate that they were really um, myths. But of course, the story that candy didn't poison a child is nowhere near as enticing as the story that candy did po poison a child. So they weren't very they were very successful in their, um, in their public relations attempts. Um, meanwhile, at the same time, there were other kinds of attacks on candy, uh, moral attacks, in particular the idea that candy eating would lead to alcoholism, which I found this was a fascinating sort of footnote in the candy story to me, the link between candy and alcohol. I never really thought of it. But for um, temperance reformers around the turn of the century, sugar and alcohol were tightly linked, and not only you know, in this sort of economic sense, um, thinking about the origins of rum and sugar, both from sugarcane, but also the idea that from a kind of digestive point of view, candy in the system transformed into alcohol. And there was this real sense that the digestion of those sugars was fermenting into alcohol in the system. And the risk was for some people that this meant that eating candy was actually uh, tantamount to drinking. Now, on the other side were those who said, well, that might be true, but if that's the case, then maybe eating candy is a good way to solve the problem of alcohol, and the less alcohol people drink, the more candy they will eat, so that some people saw a kind of trade-off between candy and alcohol in this period. Was there some connection between candy and alcohol both being symbols for uh, pleasure without a purpose or gluttony, or was that one of the main, main fears? Find, uh, I didn't find the, the, the threat of gluttony there um, so much as more, um, I think, related to vice and the sense that 
um, that candy and alcohol and tobacco are kind of stimulating in very um, particular ways. And there, you know, there had been uh, throughout the 19th century this kind of uh, vegetarian moralism that, um, try, that tried to steer people away from any kind of stimulating food um, in, the, uh, in the sense that this would make the body sort of both more healthy and also sort of more, more morally pure. And I think that candy fit very easily into that framework that, that it was a stimulating food that both decayed the body and also implicitly decayed the soul. Uh, this was sort of, you know, a, a, a Christian moralism that wasn't widely shared by everyone, but certainly colored the ways in which candy gets talked about as a kind of evil or sinful food that would cause you guilt if you eat it. Hmm, that's fascinating. So how, how did the candy industry recover from those anxieties to enter uh, what could be called the golden age of American candy, and in particular candy bars? Well, the candy industry was growing dramatically through the teens, um, as the as the technologies to manufacture candy in mass quantities became more widespread, as I was um, describing earlier, after World War One, World War One kind of you know everything pauses for a moment. But when the soldiers come back from World War One, they come back with a fanatic taste for candy because the military had been provisioning soldiers with candy as a kind of energy boosting ration. A new kind of nutritional science had emerged in the late 19th century that linked sugar to quick energy, this idea that it was sugar that the body is metabolizing for um, muscle work, and therefore that sugar foods were ideal foods for quick energy and compact uh, calories and fuel. So the military made um, avid use of candy as a, as a resource and a booster for, for the troops, and they also um, issued lots of chocolate as an emergency ration. Um, to soldiers in the field. So when the soldiers came back from World War I, they had a big candy sweet tooth. And the, at the same time, the technology for wrapping uh, individual bars was becoming automated. And so it was possible now to produce candy bars that could be wrapped and then sold as that, as that kind of candy bar portion. And the candy bar as an individually portioned, wrapped, um, substantial candy snack really took off after about 1920. And, and there was a way, I think, that the, the spirit of the age was really met by the candy bar. You think about that interwar period, a huge economic expansion. It's the jazz age. People are really uh, experimenting with new kinds of modern lifestyles. Things are moving fast. People want energy. They're on the go. They're not going home for lunch anymore. They're not sitting down for a proper meal all the time. And the candy bar emerges as, it's like the energy bar of the 1920s. I mean, it's something you can grab on the go when you don't have time for a proper meal. It's something that fits in with this new fast-paced athletic lifestyle. And Americans went crazy for the candy bar in the 20s and 30s. There were something like 10,000 new candy bars introduced every year. That's not like they invented 10,000 new kinds of candy, but, you know, 10,000 new names, 10,000 new wrappers, 10,000 new, new appeals to American sensibilities. And, of course, most of them were local and regional, so it wasn't like I'd go down to the drugstore and be confronted with 10,000 candy bars. But it, it was really just a, a time of enormous invention and experimentation and exuberance around this new style of eating food that came from a package that was highly concentrated calories, that was extremely pleasurable, um, and that was, you know, branded and advertised. Now you think about where we are today with food, and I think we can see the ancestry of our contemporary styles of eating here in the candy bar in the 20s and 30s. So the guilt and anxieties of the previous era seemingly disappeared during this time? 
Well, they, you know, they sort of, the, 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 the dial turns down. You know, the pure food laws were passed, and so there was uh, less of a rallying point for this idea of contaminated food and adulterated food. And at the same time, uh, modern advertising techniques emerge, and so the candy industry and other manufacturing industries have a new way of reaching out to their customers and telling the story about their product. So I think the combination of you know, a, a kind of complacency about the food uh, system combined with a new kind of advertising and marketing that promoted candy as being you know, this new, modern, energetic, fun food really uh, it shifted. I mean, I wouldn't say that those worries completely went away, but they certainly did, they weren't as common in this period. When I was reading about this era, it was amazing to see how even athletes subscribed to this idea that the way of maximizing their athletic potential was to consume candy bars and candy bar after candy bar. Well, you know, there were several uh, in the in the teens and 20s. The heroes of the day were aviators, they were athletes, they were explorers and mountaineers, and it was very frequent for these, these kinds of uh, adventurous heroes to talk about the role of candy in their adventure, that candy was, you know, there was one, um, one aviator who made the first transatlantic flight, he had chocolate bars to sustain him on the way, there was a mountain climber who made it to the top of Everest and talked about in the last push to the summit, all they could eat was candy because their system was so taxed. They weren't able to digest anything more complicated than that simple sugar. So there was really a public discourse around the idea that candy was, you know, fuel for energy and fuel for adventure and part of this adventurous, heroic lifestyle. Is this when we saw the rise of some of the major candy companies that still exist and dominate the market today? Well, uh, you know, Hershey was, um, Her Milton Hershey got started in Carmel's in the 1890s. Um, and he brings out his first milk chocolate bars in the early 1900s. He, um, he was one of the first to realize the possibility of a wrapped uh, serving of, of candy like the, the, the Hershey bar. And his, one of his logos was more nutritious than meat, which really spoke to the new place of candy in the diet, that it was a substantial food that you could you know, really go someplace on. Um, the 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 Mars Company got started much later in the 30s. They were originally called the, um, what they called the Morrow Bar Nougat Company, and nougat was really their specialty. Uh, and then they hit on the Milky Way and the Three Musketeers, and and uh, later the Snickers. And you know, really, uh, the combination of a very successful business plan and some very aggressive marketing and advertising brought brought success to the Mars Company. Also, what I noticed when I looked at the candy bars that were um, popular and successful in the 20s and 30s and you know which ones of them have have hung around today it really advertising was was the the name of the game advertising and marketing and promotion the ones that 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 plunged their resources into billboards and magazine ads and other kinds of promotional efforts to make a name for their bar those are the ones that lasted and in a, you know in a climate where you have thousands and thousands of bars clamoring for attention you can see how the one with billboards and the one with magazine ads and the one in the newspaper is the one that people are going to reach for over and over again um, baby ruth is you know one that got to start then but of course that that candy bar is owned i think by Kraft now butterfinger some of those some of those many many of the familiar names are now owned by gigantic food conglomerates but hershey and mars are the two that have really weathered uh, weathered the decades by the end of world war ii a lot of the nationalistic pride and fervor over the candy bar seemed to dissipate what was going on well 
I think that candy became a little bit complacent. Uh, the candy, candy products had been very important in the Second World War. The Second World War was kind of a boost for candy because, uh, once again, the military looked at candy as being, you know, a, an ideal form of, of uh, energy rations. And so um, a huge quantity of the candy production in the war era went to military uses, and the per capita candy production was the highest during those years than, than it was before or after until well into, like, the 1980s. So the war was a really important boost for candy, but after the war was over, um, you know, the, the, the sort of sense of the candy industry was, okay, well, we have our place, and there wasn't really much innovation in terms of new products. There wasn't much of a push for, you know, really um, grabbing hold, and what was happening elsewhere was all kinds of new convenient food products and snack food products and, um, and you know, sugary treats were being developed and, and marketed by other food companies. And so you have the introduction of the sugary sweet cereals and the packaged bakery snacks and the um, different, different kinds of uh, baked goods that combine kind of candy elements like a chocolate dipped marshmallow on a cookie or something like that, that really uh, begin to compete with candy for the same place in, in the diet and, and, as a consequence, the the portion of uh, that people use, you know, the portion of of the diet that's devoted to candy kind of diminishes after the after the Second World War. I think the other factor is that people there's a, a new concern about overweight becoming overweight after the after the Second World War. You know, we have this period of the the suburbs and the soldiers coming home and this this really peaceful economic atmosphere, and I don't know that it was necessarily the case that people were actually becoming heavier, but they certainly became more conscious of their waistlines. And, you know, candy is obviously candy. It's not hiding itself as something else. And so it was easy to see candy as a problem in relationship to, um, to the perceived crisis in overweight and, and to kind of scapegoat candy in relation to that as well. With the rise of all these products that looked more and more like candy or were doing very similar things to what candy was doing, how was it determined what was being labeled as food and what was labeled candy? Well, you know, it had a lot to do with the tax system, of all things. But, you know, sales taxes have traditionally not applied to food. And so it's been a struggle throughout the 20th century. Uh, the candy industry struggled to have candy defined as a food so that it would not be uh, penalized with the sales taxes. And so one of the things that uh, state tax boards had to do was define candy, and they usually defined it um, in terms of, I mean, sort of I know it when I see it type de definitions. That is, they would list a whole bunch of kinds of candy. Um, today we have um, today we have a kind of more subtle definition of candy that applies in the state tax laws. It's usually something along the lines of, um, you know, the principal ingredient is sugar. It doesn't contain flour. It doesn't need to be refrigerated. Um, and so something like licorice and Kit Kat bars are not candy by that definition. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but you have to, you know, if you're going to tax some kinds of food and not other kinds of food, you have to figure out how to draw the line. And one of the interesting things is how difficult it is to do because, you know, if you say it's made mostly of sugar, well, lots of things are made mostly of sugar. You know, if you say, well, it's, you know, wrapped in a portion, well, lots of things are wrapped in a portion. I mean, you know, how, once you start thinking about how to draw the line and you look at all the other kinds of manufactured foods that we eat, it becomes pretty clear that any line that you draw is pretty arbitrary. And, you know, the, the only one that, that really anybody makes any sense 
offensive is just the one of usage. That is, you know, oh, I know it when I see it. That's candy, like the jelly bean. Okay, that's obviously candy. But what about the fruit snack? You know, you look at that little fruit snack. It looks like a jelly bean. It tastes like a jelly bean. It feels like a jelly bean, but we call it something else, and we sell it in another department in the grocery store. Those are the, those are the instances that I think are the most interesting because it really does tell us how important, you know, that kind of social and cultural category is versus the kind of truth of what it really is. That ties nicely into the conclusion of your book, where instead of offering some sort of condemnation for all sugary treats, you offer a defense and and a convincing defense of candy and a critique of nutritionalism. Could you walk us through that? I'll begin this by saying I like candy, so I really didn't want to end the book by saying I better never eat candy again, or at least I didn't feel like I'd end the book there without saying, well, I better not eat anything else again either, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it seemed very difficult to, you know, to draw the, the bright line, as I was saying. I think what I learned in the course of, of thinking about it and, and researching the, the, the history of candy was, you know, there there's something wonderful about candy. It, it, it presents itself as just a pleasurable morsel. It's not for anything else. It's not meant to be for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. It's not meant to be nourishment. It's not meant to be nutritious. It's just meant to be, you know, fun. And I think that we should have a little place for that in our diet, as long as we know that that's what we're eating. And the the argument that I make at the end of the book is that the food industry has become very good at disguising candy as other things. And, you know, putting sunrises and cows on, you know, on packages that have candy inside. And, you know, we think we're eating something nutritious. Um, but in fact, it's candy, candy in another disguise. And I, uh, my argument is try to eat food that is really food, that is to say, less processed, less far away from its origins. But if you want to eat a treat, candy is fine, as long as it's in its place as a treat, rather than the way in which you know, candy sort of morphed into every kind of processed food in the latter, in the latter part of the 20th century. I had a personal uh, experience with this. Um, after I finished reading your book, I went over to my friend's house who was trying to eat healthier, and I noticed he had a thing of vanilla yogurt, which he was eating for lunch, uh, and it said in big letters, fit and active across the front of it. So I looked at the back of it, and it actually has more uh, sugar per serving than the ice cream in his freezer that he was trying to cut back on because it, that was seen as being the unhealthy dessert option. Yes, well, that's just it. I mean, I I think that that you know, yogurt is a perfect example. You get those super sweet yogurts, and you're like, oh, this is healthy food. I can eat it for breakfast. And I mean, if you wouldn't eat a bowl of ice cream for breakfast, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I think you know, being more aware of what is actually in the food that we're eating, and being more careful about, especially those, um, you know, those those highly processed foods, which are so far away from where the food came from, is the important the important takeaway. What surprised you the most when you were when you were doing this research? I was surprised to discover how candy was everywhere. You know, when I started looking for candy stories, I found them all over the place. And what was so surprising about that was, you know, I initially began my research with food food histories. And I would look in the food histories to find out about Americans eating candy, and there was nothing there. It was like it never happened. And, and so I was kind of baffled because I knew that candy was a, a, you know, a pretty big industry and that there was a lot of candy around. And then when I started looking, I discovered that you know, people from 
every sort of every avenue there was something to be said about candy and that the candy story touches on so many aspects of the of especially the 20th century in America you know this transformation especially the transformation in the in the food processing industry and the transformation in the American diet but also the transformation in the way that we live the changes in the way that we associate you know sort of pleasure with indulgence or with activity the changes in our understanding of nutrition the changes in our the way we think about food and health I, I, I was so surprised to discover how much there was uh, to be said about Candy's role in American culture and, and surprised that, that so little had been said. So uh, it was a wonderful research project because I, I discovered this treasure trove of unmined sort of ideas about the role of Candy in American culture. Do you have any theories about why so little has been said about something that has such a important cultural place and has been the subject of so many shifts and debates during the course of the last century? Well, I think that it it has to do with candy itself. It it seems, number one, it seems insignificant. You know, it's not meat, it's not milk, it doesn't seem to be a substantial uh, thing in the diet, and so, you know, it's just a trifle. What, what are the words we use for candy? It's a sweet morsel, it's a trifle, you know. It seems in itself insignificant. And I also think the fact that candy was always eaten outside until recently, let's say, candy was always eaten outside of normal eating patterns. Uh, and therefore, it didn't really fit into the kind of the, the traditional histories of how we eat, which are focused more on meals and on, on home cooking. But as a manufactured good that is outside of the, the traditional meal patterns, it, didn't, it just didn't fit into the story in any obvious way. So, you know, I think it kind of just fell through the cracks of food history. One of the things that really fascinated me and we haven't had a chance to touch on was the way that gender kept appearing over and over in either the advertising or the consumption or the fears about candy. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, there had been some um, really important uh, feminist work on um, sugar in the in the 19th century in particular and the way in which as sugar became cheaper and more plentiful, um, women in increasingly became associated with sweet, with the sweet taste of sugar and with sweetness, and that women's bodies were more associated with um, the forms of, of especially soft, you know, bonbons and um, decorated cakes and things like that. And there was a real alignment of femininity with with the sweetness of sugar and a kind of devaluing of both of them. That is, that sugar had become less expensive and therefore less politically important, and also that that the role of sugar in the diet was, was marginal. You know, it's, the, it's in the dessert, it's in the cake, it's in the sweet, it's not the important thing, it's not the main course, as it were. Um, what was interesting was, to, was when I did, so I kind of came into the project with that, with that story about, about sugar and sweetness, that it was really gendered feminine and, and, you know, and, and devalued in that way. So it was really surprising and interesting to me to discover how much more complicated the story became as, the, as candy grew as an important industry, and especially its association with military uses in the wars, that, that you know, the energy of candy was really gendered masculine, that this was you know, force and fuel, and it was a appropriate for fighting and mountain climbing and adventure. And the candy bar was really a masculine candy form. I mean, they, they, one, of, one of the stories that I tell in the book is about the difficulties in getting women to eat candy bars because they didn't, you know, it's just not very, let's say, ladylike to hold that gigantic piece of candy in your hand walking down the street. So the candy bar became something that was easy to sell to men, but very difficult to sell to women. And the candy manufacturers had to figure out ways of kind of reframing the candy bar to make it appealing and desirable 
horrible to women. So I was really fascinated to see that, especially in the first part of the 20th century, the association of candy with energy and work really gendered candy masculine in a lot of ways. And, and although there continued to be this idea that women and children were mostly the candy eaters, there was also a real understanding that men were eating lots of candy too. Do you have any advice for people who are beginning to conduct their own large historical projects or, or potentially might do so? Uh, when I was reading the book, it was hard not to think about how much data you had to sift through and how potentially overwhelming that could be. It, you know, the rabbit hole was a constant temptation. And I think, you know, for people who are undertaking this kind of historical research, you really have to, you, you, you know, you have to avoid the rabbit hole. And the rabbit hole is the place where you discover really tantalizing, fascinating tidbits that only you are going to be interested in, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you really have to let it go because if you go down those rabbit holes, you will never come back out and you will never finish your project. So it's really hard to let those wonderful things go, but that's the only way to push through. And I think one of the ways to keep your eyes on the prize is to have a story to tell, you know, and to have a sense of your audience. Who am I telling this story to and what do I need my story to say? And if you try to focus your work around those two questions, I think it makes it easier to make those kinds of distinctions that you're going to have to make to pare away some of the truly fascinating but not helping you get finished type material. That seems like a great and inspiring uh, statement to end on. So okay. <laughs> thank you for joining us today. You're most welcome.